Tie game in the ninth. Jay. Rounds one. Pedroia makes the play. Throw home. Two out. Over the third. It gets away. Alan Craig is going to come to the plate. Here's the throw. He is. The umpire making the call. They're going to say he's safe. There was interference at third base. Interference with Middlebrooks at third. In your face, Don. <laughs> Take that, jerk. Yeah. Yeah. So, 2 o'clock, Sunday. I was not a pleasant person to be around. Oh, uh, the, to, the Saints game. Yeah, yeah To yeah. say that I was tense at 2 o'clock on Sunday is maybe a bit of, of uh, understatement. Yeah, yeah, I would believe it. Uh Boy, both teams blew opportunities early in that Considering game. Considering that the way the previous game had ended, resulting in me basically hiding in my room from football for two <laughs> straight weeks, I was not prepared for, you know, oh, let's have a three and out on three runs. And then let's miss field goals. And then let's let the Bills and Thad Lewis march down the field and take a lead and humiliate us in our own building. <laughs> I just wasn't, you know... Into all that. And then, you know, the Saints get a touchdown, and I tweet something totally innocuous, like something totally bland, like, wow, that was a great play by Kenny Stills. Right, right. And I lose five followers who are obviously from Buffalo <laughs> and get a nasty tweet from one of your buddies saying that how it was a gift because Mario Williams is being held on every play. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, this is the most miserable thing ever. I can't wait for this to be over. Hopefully we still have Twitter followers by the time this is over, and hopefully, you know, the Saints just win and nobody wants to talk to me about it anymore. You know what? That game, uh, I thought it was over on the very first play when uh, yeah, Thad, Thad Lewis, Lewis got looked like he smoked. got injured. I yeah. thought he maybe broke a rib or two because he got hit right in the side. So I thought, okay, this is over with. And then the Bills' defense looked really good for a second there, and then by the time the game was over, it played out exactly the way everyone probably thought it would. I mean, in reality, unless you're a crazy Bills fan and thought somehow they were going to upset that. I mean, that's just how that was going to go. The Bills weren't going to score enough, and the, they weren't going to be able to stop the Saints enough. And I think people maybe down in the Saints got a good look at how good they are in the sense that they certainly came out rusty off the bye week. But, man, when they were ready to go, it went from 10-7 Bills to 21-10 Saints in a blink. I mean, that happened in a blink. Yeah, I mean, it, it was ugly. It, Drew Brees is... It's funny because I, I thought the best play made by anyone in the game was 3rd and 20. Saints are trying to put the game away. Brees gets a snap. Pressure kind of comes in right up the middle. Brees rolls out to his right, buys some time, throws on the run to Kenny Stills, which at first glance, and, and it probably is a jump ball, but Kenny Stills was the only person who's going to catch that ball. The Bills defender was kind of behind him. And I don't know. It just, it seemed like a higher percentage than the average jump ball. I don't know if that's because of something Kenny Stills did or yeah, I don't know. where I, the throw is or something the defender did If we're wrong, thinking of the but, same play, I thought it was really underthrown too. I didn't think it was a good decision, but 
he got bailed out. I, I thought. I wasn't that the one on Roby in the end zone? It was the last touchdown pass. Yeah, I can't. I'll have to look that up afterward. But I thought he got bailed out a little bit there too. Huh. I didn't. But uh, that's okay. That's it's fair either way. Um, welcome to a season three, episode thirty-one of the Sportscasters, October 29th, two thousand and thirteen. It's uh, Yale Day on the podcast. Yes, a good time for people who are annoyed by my constant mes- mentions of uh, <laughs> Yale winning. The yeah, this isn't going to be the it's one. Probably for the you. time to tune out now. Uh, not because we're going to talk about Yale hockey the whole time. We will do that. But we're going to interview Ben Ryder, who is a graduate of Yale, who covers baseball for Sports Illustrated and was at Games 1 and 2 of the World Series and will be at Games 6 and 7 of the World Series. We're going to talk to Ben about all things that have happened in what has been a really entertaining World Series so far. Heads to Boston 3-2. to two. Uh, We're going to have a chance to see either... The first road team win a World Series there since the Reds did in 1975, the game after the famous Carlton Fisk home run. Or we will see the Red Sox win a World Series in Boston for the first time since 1918. And I can tell you that if you're trying to pay for that privilege now, it's not cheap. No, no it's it is not. It's close to a grand to stand. And I've been told that the standing room there is not good. Hmm. So Where do they even sell that? Like, Where is it? Just like used to stand like on a concourse type thing? It's got to be. Isn't there fire laws about that? Well, I know the newer buildings usually don't bother with it. Yeah, why would you? You know, I think that this is playing in a stadium that's over 100 years old is the reason that this is even possible. Right, right. What about, uh, do they, doesn't somebody sell the tickets on those, I'm thinking of the Cubs, aren't I? The ones across the street. Yeah, that's Cubs. Ah, bummer. Forget it. What a dunk that would be for them, (laughs) though, huh? Yeah, yeah, no kidding. No, but. We're going to talk to Ben about that, and then we're going to have one, if not two, if not three Yale hockey players on at the end of the show to oh, talk. Oh, three. Potentially. Uh, to talk about opening night at their arena, raising the national championship banner, and a very uneven but expected, in in some ways, split of the weekend, the first weekend. Sure. I don't know. You just feel like there's going to be some kind of hangover coupled with you're going to get everyone's best shot. Okay. Every night, you know, because every night it's a chance for you to beat the defending national champions. Right, right. And they're going to have to get used to that. So I wasn't totally surprised they split the first weekend, especially when you're playing two teams from your own conference. But uh, we'll deal with that later. All right. Uh, don't forget, check out our website, www.sports-casters.com, uh, to listen to our interview last week with Trey Wingo and AJ Delirio. Got a lot of great comments about the Wingo interview and also some excitement from Pearl Jam fans who are kind of excited about the Pearl Jam Super Fan Series, which we're going to try <laughs> to get going. Yeah. Does Anthony count as a Pearl Jam Super Fan? Because if he does, we can say we'll continue it today. He's, he's, low, in get the, it. he's low in the Super Fan power. Yeah, you rankings. could probably get his take on it, maybe like an end-of-the-interview type question. but right, yeah. Sure. But uh, we are going to do all that kind of stuff. We're going to continue the Greatest of All Time segment, which I know we're both very excited about. We're going to end with one last thing. Let's start it off with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, the World Series, which we mentioned a bit in the open, and we'll talk at length with Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated about in a few minutes. 
is five games in at this point with the Red Sox holding a 3-2 lead, trying to win their third World Series since 2004 after not winning one at all from 1918 to 2004. So they're improving on their pace if they can get this third one here. It's been an unbelievably entertaining World Series, which makes me really curious, Don, if they have drawn you to the television. I did watch the last inning or two or three of the obstruction game. So that was uh, played on what day of the week? I think it was Saturday. was a weekend game, right? I was out, though, at a bar that had it on. So that might have played into it. Not that I wouldn't have watched it necessarily at home, but I think that's the only one I've caught any of so far. Now, with it being 3-2, with it being extremely close, with the games being played in a reasonable amount of time, is there a likelihood Major League Baseball would draw you to the TV for game six or seven? Yeah, I'd say I'd probably look in on him at least, especially because, I mean, either one's an elimination game. I, I would say there's almost zero chance I watch it from the first pitch to the last pitch, but I don't know. That's just – I'm way – I don't even know I could call myself a baseball fan. I'm definitely not, but, I mean, I, I'll watch any elimination game. I'm not a basketball fan either, but if there's a chance that the championship's going to be won that night, I'll check out the end of the game. One thing you are missing, which has been fantastic, is all the Pearl Jam. Oh, yeah, I have noticed that. I think I caught it during a football game somewhere, too. Really cool at the end of the obstruction game. Is it a Fox thing? Yeah, they, okay, they licensed, I guess, 34 songs. Total. like Total. Just, okay. Um, <laughs> that's, that's weird. And uh, I guess they put a list together for Pearl Jam to approve. Okay. I guess Pearl Jam approved the whole list. So who knows? Maybe you put 34 and hope to get 20, and then you know. 34 play. different songs. Yeah. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I thought you meant they had they could play Pearl Jam 34 times during the. No, no. The- they have 34 <laughs> different songs that they have licensed. But gotcha. no, the, it was cool. After the obstruction game, the video package was to give it to Fly, which just went really well. Yeah, yeah. It was just perfect. Uh, and last night was uh, Elderly Woman, which I didn't think was quite as good, but. Um, yeah, World Series, it's great, and we're going to talk more about it with Ben Ryder in a bit. All right, on to the NFL. Uh, before we do our look ahead, which is kind of what we're going to do, I don't I don't think we've got any objection to doing that rather than the look back. More people saying, yeah, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, before we get to that, we can go quickly through uh, today's trade deadline. Uh, Jared Allen, Josh Gordon, Tony Gonzalez, all staying with the same team, even after – I mean, this is the difference with the NHL and NFL trade deadline. You've got an asset like Tony Gonzalez at the end of his career, who I guess said he'd be open to a trade, uh, doesn't get moved. And the only move is the Pats getting a defensive tackle, whose name I heard for the first time today, and a sixth-rounder for a fifth-rounder. So, effectively, they're just kind of... With Tony Gonzalez more than anything, and I don't think trading Josh Gordon makes any sense for the Browns. I think he's still plenty young enough. Oh, yeah, sure. I don't know why they would want to trade him. What was he drafted last year? Yeah, the, maybe two years. It makes no sense, right, in my opinion, draft. to right. trade him. But Tony Gonzalez, does that mean they couldn't even get a seventh round pick for him? Because what value does he have on the team? Wouldn't you? Did he announce he's going to retire this any year? Any draft pick? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, that, yeah, I don't understand it either. Uh, same with same with Jared Allen. Like, if you can get anything for him, I know your team's going to be worse in the short term. But neither of those teams are anywhere. Well, I shouldn't say that. The Falcons are close to being a winning team, just they're having a bad year. They're having the nightmare year of everything that could go wrong has gone wrong, right? Right. But if he's not coming back anyway, what does it matter? And even if he decides to come back, you can still sign him. Sure. 
Right? I mean, if he wants to come back, I'm sure your team would be a huge Yeah, they'd be first on the, the list, clubhouse. I would have right. to imagine. Right. So I don't know why you wouldn't... I, I would have to assume that means his value isn't even a seventh-round pick. Yeah, so before we got on the air, we talked about how boring the trade deadline is in the NFL, and I think it's just that the NFL is the closest to a sure thing when it comes to drafts. Uh, sure, there are busts in the draft, but if you look at the NHL, where the NHL on the top end might be the most sure thing of any draft. Like You're talking like the first three picks or so. Those guys almost never... Rarely a bust. Barely ever a bust, and a lot of times are franchise-style players. The NFL, you might get busts there, but you also get guys in the second and third round that are going to step in immediately have an impact. Kiko so, Alonso, maybe a great sure. example. Yeah. Second rounder. Yeah, Marcus uh, Colston was seven? a fourth to the last pick in the draft, right, seventh right. round. You know, so so yeah, there's a lot of value in NFL draft picks, whereas the other leagues are drafting kids, and maybe it's not the same. So nobody gets moved, and it trade deadline's totally totally boring. Maybe they should push it back a little bit with that. I don't know drum up excitement. I don't know. So let's say you don't have a favorite team specifically. Maybe you're more of a fantasy football fan, or sure. And let's say you have a wife or a husband or a significant other who gets on your case for spending a lot of time in front of the TV on Sunday. Right. This is the week to give her the trip to the pumpkin farm or yep, apple picking. Absolutely. Or anything that might buy you the rest of the season on the couch on Sundays because this might be the most dreadful slate of NFL games in a long time. The- there is one game all week. That features teams with winning records, and it's That's the Monday. Monday game. Yep, so good for ESPN, I suppose. They're going to probably get what will be the best game that is also But it's also relevant. Green Bay versus Chicago without Cutler. Well, that's true. Too. You know what I mean? So it looks even better than it is. Because is, is, are the Bears capable of going into Lambeau and beating the Packers without Jay Cutler? I doubt no, it. No, I don't think so either. And, I mean... There's games that might turn out to be good games. Like maybe Falcons Panthers turns into a good game. Maybe Colts but it's just and Titans. Ir- it's just irrelevant. Right. And Colts I got Rams Titans. Colts and who Or Texans, I meant Texans. to say. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. The Texans though are playing uh, Again, yeah, a not, rookie quarterback. Not and that's by design because Schaub's been terrible. I was looking from a fantasy perspective today. The Texans offense has given up something like seven often like seven defensive touchdowns to other teams. They've been ridiculously bad. Uh, so yeah, I don't know how much to say my bills, uh, play and I'll say this loud. Uh, the chiefs are not the best team in the league. I think the bills got a great shot here. Sure. I just think they do. I think that the chiefs like to play in the twenties, right? So the bills will gladly play you in the twenties. And I, I'll be really surprised if one of these two teams doesn't have the ball in the last two minutes with a chance to win. I mean, the evidence that the chiefs are not the best team in the league in this I should go off on power rankings for my one last thing today, but this is kind of like the NCAA coaches poll. If you're just going to give it to undefeated teams, why even have one? And if you're going to have power rankings, why even bother to put explanations next to the team? Almost every power ranking has the Chiefs as the number one team, and that's by default. They're they're not going to beat Denver. They're not. They wouldn't beat the Saints. They. If I could sign up right now for a chance to play a Super Bowl against the Chiefs. I don't want to use hyperbole here, but I would probably be willing to give up whatever body part I have two of. <laughs> you know, like if it's, what is it, your kidney? or I mean, there's something I know you can give up. Right. I would gladly help some poor, sick kid 
with a body part in exchange for. And the Chiefs have historically had great home field advantage, but I think Denver, New Orleans, uh, I think those teams would play the Super Bowl in the Chiefs stadium right now and be favored to win that game. They're not the best team in the league. The Bills uh, are a three-point dog right now. So that says all you, all you need to know about. I think the Bills got a great shot. I would not be surprised if they win. Sure. Uh, I, I really don't know any other game to talk about here. All right, I'm good. Third thing for me today, the Buffalo Sabres made a splash yeah. and traded Thomas Vanek, which I think we should both say. I don't think I've seen a lot of this. Wow, Thomas Vanek is one of my all-time favorite Sabres. I've yep. seen that over and over again. Probably my second all-time favorite Sabre. He's right up there for me. Chris Drury is definitely my number one, so I know Thomas Vanek isn't my number one. Right, right. I know it's Chris Drury, but he's real close to two. If he's not two, he's probably three or four. He had a great career here. He was a member of two of the best teams we've ever had here. He scored big goals. He's been the best player on bad teams here. He's always played harder than people have given him credit for. And he's just nasty, and I wish him all the best in New York. With that said, I think Darcy Regeary did a decent job here. Sure. Surprised how early he did it, but I'm not surprised when you look at the fact that they're 1-11-1 or whatever they are. Uh, and as far as what they got, a player, a player who they don't have to pay beyond this year, who they could flip for more draft picks if they want. Sure, right. And a first-round pick and a second-round pick. Now, something came out today. That if that there's some protection with the first round pick, if it's a top ten pick, it moves to 2015. It can. I think they have the option. But that'd be fine because 2015 has the better top player. Right. So wouldn't you be okay in the sense that you just have an extra bullet then? Sure. I'm sure uh, the Sabers are like fine because we're going to be doing this for two years. I'm sure that's got to be right. Right. And if I, I saw an argument today, or I had a conversation with a friend today over email talking about how. The, the Sabres have drafted, and the way they've drafted in the past to suggest that they can build through the draft doesn't really work. And his point wasn't that Darcy can't draft. It's just that draft picks aren't sure things. And I, I said the only top draft pick we've ever had was Vanek, and we nailed it. Right, fifth overall Fifth pick. overall. Right. So these extra picks aren't necessarily going to be the blue-chip players because if you're the Islanders, you plan on making the playoffs, and that's going to be another middle-round pick. But the Sabres still have their own pick, which is going to be really bad. But going to your point about the Islanders' pick, if they finish number 10, do you think they defer it? Or no. You, no? I don't either. Um, They're not going to take the risk of not having the first-round pick in the McDavid year. Right. Just in case something were to happen, like Tavares breaks his knee the first night. Right, and, and now there's a lottery, bad. too. Right. I mean, if, they're, if they get the number 2 overall pick or something like that, I think they probably have to defer it. But... Yeah, I don't, I don't think that really hurts the Sabres at all, that news that came out today. None. Uh, my last thing this week. Wait, one last thing I want to say about sure. the Sabres. I'm sorry. They totally blew it earlier this month with Pominville when he returned. Uh, didn't give the fans oh, a yeah, chance to yeah. honor him. And they got killed for it, rightfully so. They did a good job last night, at least in the building. I didn't get to see it on TV. I've heard some complaints about the way they handled that. Well, they, I think they showed the montage during a commercial break. Right. But when it came back from commercial, they did show the end of the montage and Lindy's reaction. Basically what, what we're talking about here since we didn't say it. Oh, right. Uh, Lindy Ruff, who's a longtime coach of the Sabres and a former player, a very good player, uh, returned for the first time since being fired by the team last year as coach of the Stars. 
after the first commercial break, they immediately started to play a video package, which as soon as anyone knew what it was, everyone stood, stood up and cheered. Yep. And I yeah, it was real cool. I don't know if there was audio to it, but I can tell you if there was, you couldn't hear it in the arena. Oh, really? People were cheering louder than whatever audio might have been attached to the video. Yep. Uh, so good job, Sabres. Do you think Thomas Vanek's number gets retired? No. Not, not soon, quite. but not ever? No, nah, probably not. That's that's a, it's pretty close. Um, uh, you know, it won't be soon because they still haven't retired Hashik's for some reason. And they haven't retired McGillney's either, have no, they? Uh, yeah, McGillney's is Oh, there. he is retired. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which they foolishly did it on a night that they played the Leafs, so half the building was Oh, yeah, fans, yeah. Right? That's right. I do remember that. But uh, uh, I wouldn't have a problem with it. But I think Hashik is embarrassing. Hashik is extremely embarrassing. And I've been in the arena at least three times and either new people next to me who aren't from here or people say to me, where's Hashik's number? Right. It's it's been too long. Is there even an argument that he's not the greatest player to ever play for the team? Yeah, you could argue Perot. Perot, maybe. But that's it. Right. Okay, my last thing this week. uh, Tiger Woods and EA Sports will no longer have a partnership. and This is foolish. It's weird from both party's perspective i'm guessing ea initiated yeah. the split really <laughs> who's gonna buy a well it's gonna Rory be mcelroy golf or i don't whatever? i think they're just gonna call it like ea sports pga 2000 whatever i, I don't, don't think know. they have exactly nailed the name down yet but the weird thing to me about this is if you didn't do it the night that his wife came after him with a golf right club, like now? every other sponsor right. did why now and in addition to and this is why maybe you're right. Like when you said you're surprised that maybe it was EA. I don't think they came out with who initiated the split. But he's not even going to be in the game. Uh, Yikes. Unions in uh, team sports are required to use their players and their likenesses in their games. Like I guess the league can license them out or whatever. But in individual sports, you don't have to. And Woods will not. So after a long run, Tiger Woods and EA Sports. Can you think of a more other than Madden? I mean, this has got to be the biggest name to drop off of a, a sports-titled video. I mean, what other ones were there? Michael Jordan not being in NBA jams comes to mind. That's right. That's right. I wonder why that was. I don't remember. I don't remember either, but that's really all I can think of. But, yeah, so we'll see how this sells. I, I know people I th- are always I think a little bit excited. it's got to be less. I, I would think so, I'd be too. be shocked if it's not less. But, yep, yeah, uh, peace out, Tiger Woods Golf. All right, we are going to take a break, and we will come back with uh, Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com to talk about the World Series. Our next guest is from South Orange, New Jersey, and is a graduate of Yale University. Today is a staff writer at Sports Illustrated where he covers baseball, football, and he spent the summer of 2010 covering the World Cup soccer tournament. Uh, he is making his fifth appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Ben Ryder. What's up, Ben? Hey, how you doing, Steve? Really good. It's, it's Yale Day on the podcast today. We got an alum and two current hockey players on the show. Fantastic. Bula Bula, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got... You know, Craig Breslow pitching in the World Series for the Red Sox as well. Yeah, and I want to be really excited about that, but he's kind of been the goat for the Red Sox so far in a way. Oh, I don't know if he's been the goat. He's had such a great year. You know, a few things uh, haven't gone his way, uh, specifically that, that ill-advised throw 
uh, that sailed over to third base. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we see him again uh, doing what he did all year um, in one of these next couple games. You still think they would go to him in a big spot? Uh, you know, I think probably ideally um, just to get his confidence back, they would kind of have a game one-like situation where they just kind of go way ahead and get, have him come in and kind of a less stressed situation. But, uh, yeah, I think maybe Farrell might think twice, but I do think that they'd go with Breslow once more uh, if necessary. I don't think he's scared away from him or anything. You know, one thing that I think is kind of on the topic, one thing that is about the World Series that's a little bit different, it's just how much scrutiny there is about every single thing the manager does. I mean, maybe last night, Game 5 is a good example of, you know, the decision for Wainwright either to pitch or not pitch in the 7th there. And it just seems like with Twitter, it's so easy on in, in this to, to first guess now. It's not even all second guessing. There's plenty of first guessing going on. But it still seems like it's so result, results-based that it's just kind of unfair. Like if Wainwright gets that out, you never hear another word about it. But he doesn't, so now this is the big thing to talk about the next day. That's a, that's a really fair point. I mean, I do think that at certain times in this series, the managers have done things that you could very easily have correctly first guessed, uh, such as you know a couple of games ago when uh, John Farrell declined to double switch and let Brandon Workman hit uh, for some reason. He even admitted that he kind of messed up. Yeah, he did. Messed that up because of his uh, unfamiliarity with the National League rules, but. I mean, look at last night, right? I mean, he let John Lester, who's never had a hit in his life, uh, take that at bat, um, you know, when, when almost everybody was calling for him to uh, go to a pinch hitter. Uh, and it worked out. You know, Lester gave him another inning and two-thirds after that, and they won the game. So you're right. It's very results-based. There have been a few things that you could say, hey, that was just an obvious screw-up. But, you know, everything else is really a judgment call on both the part of the manager and on the part of the Twittering masses. You were in Fenway uh, for Games 1 and 2. Before we get too far ahead, I'm just curious, looking back, is there anything specifically that really sticks out from those first two games? Anything about Fenway specifically? Anything specifically about being there that maybe most of the listeners who are more observers on TV wouldn't have maybe picked up on or gotten a feel for? You know, it's... It was very cold there. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how much you picked that up on TV. Uh, it was definitely you know, below 40, uh, which seemed to maybe have some sort of impact, at least in game one, on the Cardinals, um, although their kind of coldness of the bat has continued. But, I mean, I guess maybe one thing that really stood out um, from being in person at Fenway, especially in game two, was just how legitimately dominant Michael Walker was, right? I mean... This is a guy, when you're watching him in person, um, he's not doing anything to distract. He's not doing anything. He's not engaging in any trickery. He's just straight over-the-top dominance. You know, 95-mile-an-hour fastball, 85-mile-an-hour changeup, basically no break on either pitch, just straight over-the-top, real downward plane. And, you know, the Red Sox just couldn't hit it. The one time they did hit it was... Uh, when he was clearly fatigued, you know, at the end there versus David Ortiz, his top fastball had dropped at that point from 95 to about 91. And I think that was the real reason why uh, Big Pop, he was able to hit that bomb um, to put the Sox ahead. Uh, and that's also going to be something to watch for, for sure, in Wednesday night's Game 6. 
You know, Waka is still a young guy, not used to pitching this many innings. Was that fatigue um, just a matter of that particular game, or is this kind of the accumulation of a season's worth of work catching up with him? You know, Waka's an interesting point just because I feel like only organizations like the Cardinals have things work out that perfectly where you can let a franchise great player walk away, uh, get a draft pick towards the middle to second third of the draft, have, what, six or seven pitchers picked ahead of your pick and Mm -hmm. end up drafting maybe the guy that looking back in 10 years, everyone's going to say, man, that's six or seven teams that picked a different pitcher are going to say, ah, that's the guy we should have taken. Uh, you're right. Um, you know, and the thing that should be underscored is that luck has nothing to do with it, really. They know what they're doing as far as drafting and scouting. I have a big story in actually this week's issue of SI on the 2009 draft, or take people into the war room there uh, for the Cardinals, of this draft that produced five out of the 25 members of the World Series roster four years later. I mean, that's absolutely unprecedented to get even five, like, very good players out of a single draft. In this case, we're talking about Shelby Miller, Joe Kelly, Matt Carpenter, uh, Matt Adams, and Trevor Rosenthal. But these are five real contributors on a World Series team. I mean, a couple teams don't have any guys who've even reached the big leagues from that draft so far. So they really know what they're doing in the draft room. They always knew what they were doing as far as their approach to free agency by letting poo holes go. I mean, this is one of the key moves that this organization has ever made for allowing them to re-sign Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright and, of course, to draft Michael Walker with the compensation pick. I mean, this is a franchise that always has its eyes on the long term, and they know how to go about sustaining success better than anyone. Yeah, and last time we had you on, which I think was in uh, May sometime, maybe even June, you had just written a cover story about the the Cardinals hmm. and, and the success that the organization has had. So I didn't mean to kind of present it as like a, they fluke into it. It's just like, it's just another example, I think, of how good this organization really is. Right. No, you're exactly right. And you're also right that I've, you know, probably written about half a book on this team this <laughs> year alone. Um, but, you know, there's so many different ways that they do it, you know, through the draft, through free agency, through player development, um, through their culture, on and on. Uh, that you know, that it's really a model not just for baseball, a baseball franchise, but for uh, any sports franchise, and really a good model for a lot of different businesses. How you can kind of sustain success by keeping your core values in place, but innovating and react and reacting to changing realities on top of it. So I guess that's just another way to say that even if the Cardinals uh, do lose Game Six or Game Seven and lose the World Series. Um, this is not the end of their story by any means. I want to get your impressions about the endings of games three and four. And I guess for game three, I want two, rea- two, two questions. First, what was your immediate reaction when the ball was thrown to the plate and it looked like we had an out and then we didn't get a call at all and we realized there was obstruction? Your immediate reaction. And then after you had some time to maybe listen to the, the umpires and and to read the rule and to take it, did, did your reaction change at all? Or, or where do you kind of stand now on it? The two different reactions to the ending of Game 3. Mm-hmm. Well, I was watching this game on TV. I was not in Bush Stadium for this game. Um, but when I saw the initial play at home, which the, the home plate umpire, Dana DeMuth, um, actually you know, called Craig safe. 
right? Um, I kinda, pretty quickly. He, I kind of uh, thought he just yeah, stood he, up. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. No, he stood up. He right. stood up and he, he, he swung his arms out wide pretty okay. fast. All right. Um, and my reaction was basically identical to the one that Adam Wainwright said he had, which was, we just saw the worst tagged <laughs> worst call, call right. of all time, right? Because <laughs> clearly he was tagged like way before he reached home plate. Um, however, once we started seeing, you know, this obstruction play um, that Middle Bruce had tripped him up, I have to say I very quickly came to think that the umpires made the exact right call according to the rules. Um, that was my initial impression. And when you start looking into the letter of the law about how um, it doesn't matter if a fielder intends to obstruct or not, you know, as long as he um, is no longer in the immediate act of fielding the ball and does obstruct the runner, I mean, it's an obstruction call. So to me, it was much more black and white than even a lot of the commentary about it made it seem like I think it was definitely the right call. You know, it's maybe a rule that baseball might want to look at um, if they think there's a danger that runners will start trying to get fielders to obstruct with them, you know, kind of go out of their way um, to do that. But I didn't think that Alan Craig did that in a situation. I think that he firmly established his baseline. He was tripped up by Middlebrooks. And, you know, letter of the law, it's obstruction. It might not be a great way to end the game or a way you like to see a World Series game end, but it was the right call. Um, and the right call made by Jim Joyce, who's most famous yeah, he's for always in the messing of up that right. Armando Galarraga perfect game. Um, he's been a great umpire for a long time, and I think he showed why there and kind of redeemed himself a little bit um, from that terrible call he admittedly made a few years before. A lot of people focused on Middlebrook's feet. Before maybe even people realized, you know, the intent doesn't matter part of it. Did you think that, just curious, did, did you think he intended to obstruct him or do you think it was? Uh, no, I don't, I, okay. I don't think, I don't right. think that he was, I mean, I just think that was, you know, I don't know, involuntary. Like he'd really just um, hit the ground trying right. to field that ball like this millisecond. Is, this is the only problem I have with it. Not that, mm-hmm. that the umpires did anything wrong. I think, first of all, I think it's incredibly professional to make that call i think a lot of us and maybe this is more fans than actual Mm -hmm. professional umpires want to think that there's more feel to calls than there really is like in the stanley cup Mm -hmm. last year there was a a penalty that was called by uh stephen wolcombe who's actually the the boss of the officials now so a really established referee that was made almost simultaneously which would, would have been a game seven winning call and everyone was the first thing everyone said was well how do you make that call there and it's and I think it's because he doesn't care about there. He just cares about making the call. But I'm getting away from my point. My point is that here's the problem I have, and, and I think it's something they need to look at, is the, the throw is bad. So he makes a play on the ball, and he stays on the ground and ends up obstructing him. If he stands up right away, he, they're going to tangle up, and he's going to obstruct him. So he he's dead to rights the second he decides to make a play on the ball. So really there's absolutely nothing he could have done once that throw was made to save the Red Sox. So if he doesn't make a play on the ball, the ball goes away. And, uh, well, I guess he was out. So I guess if he doesn't make a play on the ball, it might have worked out for them. But as soon as he makes the play on the ball, he's done. Um, Yeah, I mean, well, if he had caught the ball... If he he caught the ball, he's okay, right. 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 So, yeah, I mean, you know, there are these just crazy plays that happen in sports that no matter what the rules are, will kind of fall between them. You know, just like in the legal world, there's always going to be loopholes 
Um, there's going to be that way in sports. I think that it, you know, it was the right way. I kind of refer to that play or that type of play as a Rorschach test, right? It's like the way that you see this thing um, kind of reveals uh, your predisposed allegiances and things like that. So without exception, really, anybody who might have been leaning toward the Red Sox saw that as a horrible call, right. um, an outrage, et cetera, et cetera. Probably anyone leaning toward the Cardinals saw it the other way. And it seems like most people are down the middle, uh, like I am, kind of just said, well, it's an unfortunate call. Right. But by the letter of the law, that's how it had to be called. Yeah, and to so, be clear, I mean, I have no dog in the fight at all. Right, right. You know, no. So I, mm-hmm. just kind of thinking it through and watching it, I was just like, man, I, I just kind of feel like there has to be some some protection for the fielder there to be able to make a play on the ball because it just seemed like he put himself in a spot where – yeah. Yeah. But no, I, I, yeah. Anyway. Totally fair. But from the other side, like, say that there had been no protection for Alan Craig there, you know, won't fielders just be like diving all over the place in front of runners right. Um, right. Well, all then, the time? And maybe what so, we're, anyway, I don't know. Maybe what <laughs> we're saying. Different... Maybe what we're saying here is we need to make this a judgment call to some degree. But in sports, we we try to d- avoid judgment calls at all costs because we hate judgment. Mm-hmm. You know. So I don't know. But uh, the next night was just as crazy, and I think one thing the next night proved me was what a unbelievable clubhouse the Red Sox must have because it just seems like that's the kind of game that can bury a team, game three. You know, to have it end like that, it, I've seen it many times unravel for teams after something like that. And instead, the next night, the bizarre thing goes their way where you have Beltran, arguably potentially the best hitter on the Cardinals, although maybe playing injured, uh, at the plate as the tying run, and a rookie gets picked off. Mm-hmm. Of course he does, right? <laughs> like, of course. Yeah, and again, I just wonder what your reaction was when, well, you were probably, like me, looking at people in the stands and not seeing him get picked off exactly, but what was your initial <clears throat> thoughts uh, at the pickoff there? My initial thought there was, at least before the play, was, you know, what the heck are the Red Sox doing holding, holding this on, guy right? on the bag, mm-hmm. right? Like, it didn't seem to make sense. Koji Uehara had not picked anybody off since 2011, Obviously, Colton uh, Wong is not feeling there with a two-run deficit. Like, why would you have Napoli on the first base bag, kind of opening up such so much space for Carlos Beltran to hit a ball through the hole? You know, well, I guess there are a number of reasons for it. One is that they seem to have had some idea that Wong had this tendency to kind of take this jump-step type of secondary lead that might have been exploited. Um, I don't know why he was doing it in that case. Like, even had he gotten, you know, an excellent jump, you still need two runs. But it was clearly, you know, a rookie error, one that was born of inexperience, and the Red Sox exploited it. Now, I don't think that that was quite as dramatic an ending as the previous evenings was, um, but it was certainly as bizarre. Yeah, no kidding. And I think Major League Baseball actually had a pretty, pretty, pretty clever hashtag of how will Game Five end and. Game five was a little bit more standard baseball game. I was impressed they got it done in under three hours, which I think is something that baseball really needs to work on is the length of these games. I mean, they they took a little bit of a step in starting them earlier. It seems like they get them off a lot closer to 8 o'clock than they used to, but, you know, four-hour baseball games, there's just got to do something about that. But... Let's well, to be fair, to be fair, this this World Series the games haven't been that long. No, they've like, been I don't good. think any of them have yeah. been much over three hours and ten minutes. Yeah, they've so. been good. And last night was the best. But yeah, they've been yeah, good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so you get to go to Fenway, and and the cool thing about that is that well, there's going to be a World Series award there, and it's either going to be the first time a road team wins there since '75, or it's going to be the first time the Red Sox win there since 1918, which 
I think I've seen standing room only tickets no lower than about 800 bucks. So it should be a, a pretty incredible atmosphere from the baseball side. <laughs> what are you, what are you expecting from game six and seven pitching matchups and, uh, uh, anything else that you're you're kind of keying in on as we get into the games uh, in the next couple of days, Wednesday and Thursday? Right. Well, my take is pretty simple, which is that I actually have a strong suspicion that the winner of tomorrow night's Game 6 uh, will win the series. Obviously, if it's the Red Sox, they're going to win because that'll be their fourth win. Um, but I think if the Cardinals uh, beat the Red Sox, beat Lackey there, and then you set up a matchup against Jake Peavy, um, who I just don't think has it at the moment, um, with Joe Kelly looking strong on the other side. Yes, I think we should probably expect if it gets to Game 7, the Red Sox are going to throw everything they've got at the Cardinals. But I still think that the Cardinals will have to be a favorite in that pitching matchup. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that Lackey um, is going to be the key to the Red Sox wrapping up a World Series at home. You know, it's, it might not be a matter of whether they win one at home for the first time in 1918. It might be a matter of whether they win one at all. Um, they've got a very, very strong test ahead of them in Michael Waka, who, you know, as I said earlier, besides those few moments of fatigue in Game 2, has seemed virtually invincible all postseason long. Can you remember a player in a World Series kind of as locked in? I hate to say that sounds so cliche, but the way Ortiz is hitting is pretty, pretty impressive, huh? No, I mean, I can't. Yeah, people talk about Billy Hatcher of the Reds um, about uh, 20 years ago. Um, but no, I mean, absolutely not. You know, not not only the way that he's hitting the ball, but I don't know. I don't know how much to put into this pep talk he gave um, the team in the between the fifth and sixth innings in, in game four. You know, when they were tied 1-1, nobody else was hitting at all besides Poppy. At that point, he had seven hits in the series, and the rest of his team had 13 combined. But everybody saw that pep talk in the dugout, and then everybody saw, um, you know, Johnny Gomes hit a three-run homer in, in the top of the next inning. So I think that, yeah, I mean, talk about MVPs, you have two fantastic candidates. This, of course, is assuming the Red Sox win. Two fantastic um, candidates. One in any other year would be John Lester giving up one run in two wins. I mean, you can't ask for more than pitcher uh, can't ask a pitcher to do more than that. But, yeah, this is just kind of like a one-of-a-kind, otherworldly World Series by the 37-year-old Big Poppy. Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated, good friend to the show, is going to be at the games the next couple of days. You can follow him at Twitter at SI underscore Ben, R-E-I-T-E-R. One last thing, just something that I've kind of enjoyed, is the way that the Red Sox have used the closer. I just love the way they just bring them in when they need the outs. And it's just a strong contrast to the way the Braves blew their season, letting Craig Kimbrell stand in there with his hands on his hips and a ball in his glove, watching the ball sail out of the ballpark. I I don't understand the mentality of managers and closers. And I just love the way the Red Sox have, uh, have handled it really since, since the, the ALCS and, and all through the playoffs, anything else you want to mention about the series or anything before we let you go? I know you're, you're busy getting ready to, to cover these games. Hmm, you know, I, I guess not really. I guess I'm the lucky guy who's not going to have to pay $800 for a standing room right? ticket tomorrow night. I mean, I'll pay in the, the work I produce, which I hope all your listeners check out on SI and SI.com. But uh, it's going to be a pretty, pretty energetic, magical one night or two nights possibly. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. And make sure you check your timeline on Friday night. I'll have a pretty sweet picture of the banner for you. 
All right, man. Appreciate right. it. Steve. Thank you. All right, thanks to Ben Ryder for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate his time getting ready to go out to Fenway. Very jealous of him. Would love to be there in Fenway and see uh, see the Red Sox win. Not that I care about the Red Sox, but I bet it'd be pretty cool to uh, be there. Be yeah, there for that. Sure. All right, the greatest of all time segment. We started it last week. Don and I each nominate three things and three uh, categories that we create and select as the greatest of all time in that category. Got some responses on Twitter. Uh, one response that was common, Don, is that Donatello, who you named the greatest Ninja Turtle of all time, this is crazy. Would be way. last. It's crazy. In almost everyone's list. Crazy. He created the. Uh, he creates all the the gadgets they use, like the turtle bus. Uh, he wired up the lair in the second Ninja Turtles movie. Got that all up and running. Uh, in the new cartoon, he created the. Uh, it's basically the same thing they had. Like it's a different bus, but the bus they have in that one. He he is the back. He's got. All positives, no negatives. The one that probably came up the most from people responding was... Is the lamest weapon? Was Raphael was the one that everyone... He's a liability, though. Yeah, he wouldn't be mine. I think I'd have to go... I don't know what I said last week, but after talking it out with everyone, uh, I have to go with Leo, too, because I love captains. Okay. We got a really good one from someone maybe you know, Matthew Wagner. He's at King Wag Z on Twitter. No, I don't think so. Oh, he says greatest of all time, hash, Leo, hashtag leader, hashtag two swords. Yeah, and I wrote back that Leonardo was the vanilla ice cream of Ninja Turtles. <laughs> he's just, he's there, he's too clean cut. He's got two swords, never cuts anybody. I love captains, though. Yep. So that's why I, I probably lean that way. Uh, another one we got was Dr. Will, greatest big brother contestant of all time. Interesting. Yeah, I'd go with Dan. I have you no know idea. nothing. No. I watched the one episode on the show where they were shooting baseballs and water at the people on the little planks that recently happened this year. <laughs> that was the only one I've seen. Recently, anyway. Um, someone wrote me that Theo Epstein is the greatest Pearl Jam super fan of all time. Kind of playing into both of the right, things right. we asked people to. He's probably the wealthiest. To respond to. He's certainly got the most pull. I mean, he was able sure. to get the band to play at the stadium he operates. That's right. Which is pretty. The only thing about that is I don't know if he's going to come on with us. No, I would guess not. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, we have had an, a sports GM on the show, but he wasn't a sports GM yet. You know what's funny you know, about We have Michael Lombardi, who's the current GM of the. What's funny about that is my first thought was, oh, yeah, Theo Epstein, the Red Sox. And I'm like, no, wait, somehow I'm missing up like all the Red Sox. And yeah, he was Cubs. the Red Sox manager. Okay, that's why. So at least that would make sense. With the Cubs now. Okay, I'm just two old teams, I guess. All right, so let's go on. We'd love to hear your responses to the greatest of all time. Give us your nominees. Complain about ours. You can find us at sports underscore casters on Twitter. Email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. One other thing about last week. I tagged Starburst in one of my tweets and mentioned that you had named them. Pink. Pink. The best Starburst. It's the best no response from Starburst. Hmm. Isn't, do you find that as weird? Like, who's running 
the Starburst Twitter and saying that they have no time, to no them. time to respond to someone suggesting one of our flavors is the greatest of all time. Yeah, that is a little odd. So boring. a lot of those places, I think, have like bots or something that seek seek out mentions. Yeah, and will like favorite tweets automatically, and they didn't Nothing. even bother with that. Nothing from the Starburst people. So go to hell, Starburst. <laughs> all right, my first in the greatest of all time this week is the one. Mine are a little bit controversial again this week, somewhat by design, somewhat in my own mind. I'm a little torn with some of these, but not with this one. Uh, I don't think there's any argument. The greatest comic strip of all time is Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, for me personally, the only one close would be the far side. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are going to say Peanuts. Peanuts had its poignancy and all that, but it just had nowhere near the humor of Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes did it all. It's, it's the perfect comic strip, and uh, there's a reason people still wonder what Bill Watterson is up to in uh, Chagrin Falls, Ohio. So... Comic strip number one, greatest of all time, Calvin and Hobbes. You think he loves that hip song? I don't know if he would know it. No. I, you would have to think, think everyone in Chagrin Falls, it, yeah. Ohio, would know about the song about them. What I try to seek through that song. Like, is it about Bill? Watt? Like, who? Why would they write a song about Chagrin Falls, Ohio? I'm not sure because they don't make direct reference to Bill Watterson at all. But... And now, can I suggest some others? I just want to know why. Sure. They're not, I'm not saying they are. Okay. I don't know enough about this genre to have a strong opinion. Okay. But there's a few that come to mind. Garfield is certainly one. Yeah. Is it too... It's not funny. Not funny. You know what? They've I've seen Garfield panels before. There's this thing online you can look up that uh, you erase John or something, and it looks like he's a depressed... Uh, you erase John and like John's dialogue, and it just looks like Garfield is like a depressed, manic cat. There's like a whole meme of it online. It's very odd. But I don't find it funny. You said the other side, right? Would be the one. Far side. Far side. I think me. the far side is really funny. That's the it, one. That it's really good too. Next. It just doesn't have like the poignancy and like the uh, the heart that Kelvin and Hobbes does. Uh, Beetle Bailey. No, no, no. Not funny. No, those aren't funny. No. Uh, is there anything else you can read in the Sunday paper that's funny? Now? Yeah. Like Marmaduke. Dilbert has its moments, but it's it's nerdy. It's is this of... a lost genre of? In general, like, is this... you know what? I think I liked it more when I was a kid because I was a kid and found things funnier. I don't think they've gotten any better or worse. I think it's kind of like a monologue on a on a late night show. They're just not that funny because they have to crank them out every day. But Calvin and Hobbes is consistently good. I own the entire archive and I still check it out time and again, and it's still funny. So, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anything close in my mind. All right, we've been uh, we started a Pearl Jam super fan series. We've talked a lot about Pearl Jam the last few months. I don't think anyone would be all that shocked for me to say that I think Pearl Jam is the greatest band of all time. <laughs> and oh, that's not your number one, or it is? No, it is. Oh, okay, but that's not my category here. Gotcha. That'd be a waste of time. Oh, okay. Uh, instead, with Fox playing all the Pearl Jam songs on the World Series. Uh, and with a new single and a little bit – I'll just clear up for everyone. Black is the greatest Pearl Jam song of all time, and I don't think it's close. I would agree. And when you have a band who, in my opinion, there's probably 15, maybe even 20 songs that on any given day can be in my top 10, for me to say that there is no song on any given day that could be in my top one other than this one is probably a really strong statement. Yes. But I, I totally agree, though. Just for the way – the way it's played on the album, to the way it's played live, to the lyrics, to the fact they wouldn't make a video for it, just everything about it is perfect. It is perfect. I think it's the one song that, unless you're very young, is universal, universally relatable. 
Um, it can be something different to everybody. It could be about death. It could be about a breakup. It could be about someone moving away, anything like that. But I think it'd be hard for someone to listen to it and say, I can't relate to the, the singer at all in that song. All right. My number two, and like I said, these two are going to be very controversial, I think, and drum up a lot of uh, conversation because I've had a hard time nailing down my favorite, and this might even be one of those that changes depending on when you ask me. But the best zombie-related media, I bring this up because of the popularity of Walking Dead and World War Z, and I like The Walking Dead. It's maybe my favorite TV show now, but I also recognize it's really, really overrated. A lot of buzz. Yeah, but it's... And it, it kills its time slot every Sunday night. They get 16 million viewers for a cable. That's nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. But I recognize it's it's overrated and maybe even stupid. Uh, but, like, the first season was great. And I still watch it. I still look forward to it. But that said, greatest piece of zombie-related media, I'm going to go with Zombieland. And people are going to hate that choice because it's relatively new. I know it was well-received, but purists will probably go back to, like, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, people that are into popular culture, like I said, will probably go... Uh, Walking Dead. Um, I chose Zombieland slightly above Shaun of the Dead, which is hysterical and brilliant, and slightly above the Left 4 Dead video game series, which is phenomenal also. Help me understand zombies a little bit. Beetlejuice isn't a zombie. He's a ghost, right? That I don't remember. I, mean, I think Beetlejuice dead, is a right? ghost. Of... What's yeah, but the he's difference got, like, weird between a ghost like, and a zombie? Back. Zombie is the undead. They are dead, and then they get up and walk around and seek out brains. See, that's another thing with the whole zombie genre in general, too, is there are no consistent rules, really. Even in The Walking Dead, there's no consistent rules. In the first season, one of them picks up a rock and starts banging on a window. So there shows some ability to think. They abandon that totally. They can climb fences in the first season, and then they abandon that totally. They run in the uh, first or second like. The rules for zombies have changed as the writers have changed with The Walking Dead. And the where, rules... does, where does the zombie in the cell phone commercial rank? That's a funny commercial. <laughs> I think so. that is pretty funny. Yeah. Another uh, highly rated zombie media on my list that wasn't quite good enough for number one, Plants vs. Zombies. It's phenomenal. Oh, just, right. The second one just came out for Apple and or iOS and Android. Yeah. So that's good, too. All right. One that maybe is so undebatable at Probably shouldn't even be mentioned, but I got into a little Twitter conversation about it with Sal Capaccio. Okay. WGR was a really kind guy. The guy who was nice enough to have me on the radio when I egregiously forgot to mention you. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, The greatest saint of all time is Drew Brees, and I am pretty confident that if we pick up in 100 years and do this again, he will still be the greatest saint of all time. I find it hard to even imagine a scenario where someone could have a career that we've seen already in the NFL for the Saints could do it and pass Breeze. So what I mean is even if, say, Joe Montana is reincarnated and has a pretty identical career, I still don't know if he passes Breeze because he doesn't arrive in New Orleans one year after Katrina. I I just I don't know. It's unbelievable. It's so crazy to think of what Peyton and Breeze have accomplished there when you consider when they started, and when you consider sure. how quickly they transformed the team from three and thirteen, and not playing a home game, to to going three and zero on the road to start the next year and playing the first game in the Superdome and going all the way to the NFC Championship game. I just, 
I feel really strongly about this in the sense that I just and tell me if you can. Think no, of, I, I'm not going to argue it either. But I'll throw out some names. Is there any chance that Sean Payton passes him? Well, he's not a player. No, I know. So that's tough, that make, right? But I mean, but say Breeze retires and then Payton goes on to co- he can coach ten years right. longer and yeah. wins two more or something. Yeah, he could be the he. Yes. So but I mean, I think that's the only scenario. Or like if Steve Gleason gets up and walks onto the field, like through some sort of medical miracle. But I don't think that's even as much a saint story as a human interest story. Right. And he very sadly tweeted today, I, I believe I can be cured still. What? I mean, I hope Good. he's right, but yeah. it's just so sad, you know? No, I know. It's a brutal disease. Heartbreaking. But I just, yeah, I, I think that. So Peyton's probably the only guy in the ballpark because of the he was there when Breeze was there with Katrina. Yeah, but like I said, just not a player. any career we've seen already. Whoever you can say is the no. greatest NFL player of all time. I just don't think that it's going to be enough to pass Breeze because of the timing of Breeze. I would totally agree with that. Yeah, so, I, I think a quarterback could come win three Super Bowls there, but it would always be Breeze is the best or most popular or whatever saying of all time. Um, my last one, and this will bring some controversy too, the best Saturday morning cartoon. Now, granted, this is very – Dependent on your age, but oh yeah, I have a candidate here, which I'm gonna. Back when I was on. a kid, I used to be on a bowling league on Saturday mornings, and the one thing I hated about bowling league was I believe it was started at something like 11:30. Well, the X-Men, the animated series, went on at 11, so I had to miss it. And this was before the time of DVR, so if I didn't have a VCR tape all queued up or whatever, uh, I missed the X-Men. I believe those are out there on the internet somewhere, maybe even like on Marvel's website, so you can go back and watch them all. I don't know if the series held up all the way to the end, like how cool it was, but it was the coolest thing going when it first came out. And for me, my greatest Saturday morning cartoon of all time, and like I said, this one will get picked on, I'm sure. Question, who is the greatest? Do you want to say this? Who specifically is the greatest X-Men of all time? Which character? Is you know what? Something you want to save to use later? Or is I don't have one off the top of my head. There's a pretty funny. Uh, there's a new guy that's getting a late night show. He's a comedian, Pete something, uh, and he does a thing where he plays Professor X and he interviews people for the X Men. And in one of them, he actually fires Wolverine, and it's actually really funny because he talks about how his only power is to make knives come out. And his entire body is covered in metal, and their greatest enemy controls metal, and how useless he is. It's really funny. I can't remember. Pete Holmes. He's going to get a late night show and check out his YouTube channel. Some of that stuff's pretty funny. But uh, I don't have one off the top of my head. I would counter with He Man. He Man. Because, like you said, this is going to be really specific to when you grew up. Right. And. I hated my firstborn brother for the first five years of his life because he'd always find a way to ruin He-Man time for me. <laughs> but uh, was that Castle Grayskull, or is yeah. that that's He-Man, or is that uh, Thundercat? Who had Castle Grayskull? That is He-Man, right? Yes, I had a Castle Grayskull when I was younger, the toy. And um, the other thing I'll say about this is: Are we counting Saved by the Bell? No, because it's not a cartoon. It's not a cartoon. Right? It aired on Saturday mornings. So. No, Saved by the Bell. I find is the great barometer for your. Like you could say you're a kid of the 90s or you're a kid of the aughts or you're a kid of the 80s, whatever. I think it's better defined by, uh, as far as people around my age, were you a Saved by the Bell kid or were you a Boy Meets World kid? And there's the, there's a big separation there. I'm not sure what comes after that. Maybe something like... Uh, I'm definitely not a Boy Meets World kid. Right. 
And now, I don't know what would be before are that Are we either. kids of the 80s or kids of the 90s? I think I'm a kid of the 90s. And I know that's – it's close because I'm right near the end of it. I was born in 81. Right. So, I, I mean, I'm not going to – I'm not going to claim like 81 through 86. Cause See, I can start claiming in 84, I feel like. I remember things Royal I liked Rumble? in 84. Really? At uh, four years old, I guess maybe. But I think most of my influences I – mean, barely. But like the Ninja Turtles, I think started in '88, the animated series. I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it's 1988, and that's like the first thing I remember being like really, really into. So, yeah, I'm at the end of that '80s period. And Saved by the Bell, I think, was '90s. So, all right, to kind of expand on this, my last one, <laughs> silliest of my three this week, the Cup of Joe episode is the greatest A-team episode of all time. I felt bad last week that I named The Sopranos simply the greatest television show of all time. Without qualifying. And not specifically saying it's the greatest television drama Drama. of all time. Because if I'm being honest with you, and I try to be, I believe that The A-Team is the greatest (laughs) television show of all time. As flawed as that thinking may be, and I understand the arguments against it are probably pretty compelling. I don't care. I still think The A-Team is the greatest television show of all time. And the reason... I would point to if there was ever a week where the A-Team put it all together. (laughs) It's season three's Cup of Joe episode when the A-Team are hired to fend off some bad guys who are trying to take over a mom and pop truck stop diner. And I actually have a clip of of the episode to play. Exciting. I've seen worse, Hannibal. Give me a couple of hours and some tools. Get rid of Murdoch. And I have this place looking like new. I'm telling you, I mean, here I am reading up how to prepare food so that we can run this diner properly, and that's the thanks I get. Get rid of Murdoch. Okay, then. You take care of the food, and I'll have the mechanical stuff. Right, right. Look at <laughs> I mean, this episode is everything. First of all, it has a really hot but only hot in the eighties girl. Okay. You know what I mean? Like she's just smoking. But if she was on TV now, right, right, she'd be brutal. It, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's got a great internal drama between Murdoch and BA, which I just played part of. <laughs> um, it has great bad guy moments. It has a really silly trucker character. It has a I love it when a plan comes together line at the end, which no great A-team episode can be great right, without right. it. It's got everything. Cup of Joe, the greatest A-team episode of all time. I asked you before we started this segment, and you, I think, are we're being honest then, too, that you're unclear if it was intentionally a funny show or not. I think that there's some element, there's an element of cartoonishness to it. Right, like campiness, almost. Right, which was sort of abandoned in, in the fifth and not very good at oh, all. Oh, they got serious? Season. Really? Yeah, where it just took a wrong turn. Hmm. So, yes, I think that there is an element of goofiness, which is intentional there. Gotcha. And then there's the added element of it's funny because it's the 80s and we're now in a much right, later decade right, right. and we look back on some of the silliness that the 80s brought, which I think is done really well by a new sitcom called The Goldbergs, which is worth a half an hour if you got it on Tuesday nights. I haven't seen it. Yeah. All right, so that's it for The Greatest of All Time this week. To recap, I had Black, The Greatest Pearl Jam Song of All Time, Drew Brees, The Greatest Saints of All Time, and The Cup of Joe, The Greatest A-Team Episode of All Time. I had Calvin and Hobbes as The Greatest Comic Strip of All Time, and save your emails on that one because that one's right. Uh, but the next two, zombie-related media of any sort is Zombieland, and my best 
Saturday morning cartoon, the greatest Saturday morning cartoon of all time was X-Men, the animated series. Email us with your choices, thesportscasters at gmail.com, or hit us up on Twitter at sports underscore casters. We're going to take a break and come back with some Yale hockey players. Our next guests are from Flanders, New Jersey, and Buffalo, New York, respectively. They are both hockey players on the defending NCAA national champions, and they both got more action from Miss Caster than I did at my brother's wedding. Warm sportscasters, welcome to Anthony Day and Kenny Agostino. What's up, fellas? How are we doing? Thanks for having me, buddy. So, all right. Excited to have you guys on. A lot of questions for you. First thing. So going into this season, as opposed to last season or the season before, really any other season in your lives, how is it different or the same? And you guys can both take that one. Um, it's obviously different. Um, yeah, obviously winning a national championship, you know what it's like to uh, to be at at the peak of, of the college hockey world and. Uh, you know, to win on the big stage like we did, which is a positive for sure, but uh, it's obviously also important to you know, put that to rest and understand that it's a completely new season and, uh, you know, championship's over and it's time to set our goals to winning more championships. Yeah, as Kevin was talking about, I think it's different for our team, um, except the senior class who um, already went to the NCAA tournament and they kind of had a little bit more success their freshman year um, before the rest of the team got um, to Yale. But just like Ken said, it's, you know, we got to the peak and we know what it takes to get there. And now it's just point, just um, getting through our regular season grind and focusing on, you know, weekend series and not looking too forward and uh, just taking care of what we have to do um, within our league to, uh, you know, get back to the tournament and make another run. You guys probably have a better perspective on this than I do, but one thing I was thinking, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when the Saints won the Super Bowl, then the next year as a fan, is the first time I kind of believe that there's something to when you're the defending champions, you're getting something different from your opponent that next year. More consistently, it's almost like, and I wonder if you guys felt this last weekend, maybe against Brown and, and uh, Princeton, uh, or was it Princeton? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, do you feel? Do, have you felt this yet that maybe there is a certain mentality from the other team when they step out there against you now that I don't know if it's a respect or, but maybe you get a, a higher intensity from them. With you know, there's maybe more on the line for them in the sense that wow, if we get this win, we can say we beat the the champs. I don't think um, we've you know had enough. Time. Oh, sorry, Cal. Um, uh, yeah. I don't think we've had enough games yet to uh, to kind of you know, say if it's tougher now or it's the same as last year. But, um, you know, last weekend playing teams that are in the ECAC is always hard. I don't care if you're the defending national champion or just, you know, another league game. I feel like those teams always play us hard, and that's what makes our league so tough. But I think, you know, we can answer that question better, you know, in a couple of months. But, yeah, I feel like, you know, that's what everyone says about, you know, following up a championship season. You always get everyone's best shake. And, um yeah, it'll be interesting, but I just feel like, you know, in our league, every night, anyone can beat anyone, so I think we've been kind of 
in that arena already, you know, uh, in our previous seasons that the ECAC is so tough and it doesn't really matter who you are. It's going to be, you know, a battle every Friday, Saturday. Anything you, you thought different than that, Ken? Yeah, no, I, I agree with Anthony. And uh, just to add on that, uh, like you said, it's kind of hard. I think it's kind of hard to tell the player in general if a team's going to you know, play you harder um, because of what we did last year. But that being said, um, you know, you know, I don't know what what the coach is saying to the other team before every game, but you know, I had bet every player in that locker in that opposing locker room knows what we accomplished last year, and I'm sure there's some incentive to want to uh, to want to you know knock off you know whoever at the top of the hockey roll at the time. Um, but also that being said, um, you know, we're not even the number one team in the country right now. And uh, there's a you know like like Coach Lane's been emphasizing since the season started. Uh, from our standpoint, you know we're not defending a championship. We 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 won that trophy. It's still a nice case on campus, and we don't have to worry about defending it every night. We're worried about attacking a new championship. So from our perspective, nothing changes. Uh, we play uh, hockey every game, but you know I'm sure there's there's got to be a little incentive for for most teams that that, that play us, knowing what we accomplished last year. Going into this season, did you guys? get any advice or talk to anyone who's been in a similar situation before? I mean, I know you guys know hundreds of hockey players. Obviously, there's no one that's played at your school that's been through this, being that you guys won the first ever national championship there. But do you guys get a chance to, to pick anyone's brain going into this season about maybe how it's different? Because I would think that for you guys, when playing hockey for so long, this is probably one of the first things that's, that's come up that's actually different for you guys going into a season. Well, well. Um, personally, I, I mean, I, I, I've played, uh, you know, with and against a few kids since we won in the summer. We've won national championships, but, uh, we haven't really gotten too much into talking about, you know, the next season and how you approach games. So, uh, in that regard, I don't really, I haven't really gotten much advice, you know, it's just a lot of congratulations and stuff. Yeah. And I, I personally haven't talked to anyone either. Um, I don't really know. Many people, you know, very well who've won before, but, um, you know, you hear all that stuff about people who won before and they always say the kind of the same thing. But I haven't personally, you know, reached out to anyone or gotten advice from anyone. You know, thinking about this season this year for you guys, from my perspective, I, I think you could make a pretty good argument that on paper this team might be better than last year's team to some to some extent. But I have very boldly proclaimed... Uh, publicly that I think Andrew Miller is probably the greatest Yale hockey player of all time. I know it's early, but have you felt in any way, either on the ice or off the ice, have you felt it that, that he's not there anymore? Or maybe even one of the other seniors, something that maybe I, I'm overlooking? Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, I mean, i got to say, as far as what I've seen, I think I'd have to agree. I think he is probably the best player to come through this program. And, uh yeah. From a personal standpoint, I've obviously noticed it because he was my linemate, and uh, you're not going to replace Andrew Miller. Uh, it's important that our team realizes that, though, um, that a lot of other players are fortunate to have the opportunity to step up this year and take on bigger roles, and that's exciting uh, for our team and for the players on our team. Yeah, I mean, Andrew was obviously um, one of the best to play here ever, but I feel like uh, our seniors now are, you know, going to step in that spot. And Jesse Root is um, a very capable captain and has been doing great so far. And I'm excited to see uh, where our team can go, you know, moving forward and not 
so much looking in the past. Tell me a little bit about Jesse as a captain, how he's different than Andrew or even uh, Brian the year before. I'm not exactly sure who the captain was the year before that, but I'm sure Kenny can let us know. But uh, how is uh, Ruder different? How is the same? What is it like having him in the, with the C on his chest there? Uh, no, yeah, it's great. Um, you know, obviously, I've been close with the kid for four years, and I think most people on our team will say he's a born leader, and uh, he speaks and addresses the team very well. And I think it's pretty obvious he leads by example on the ice and just a lot of little things that you want to see in a captain. Um, but obviously, yeah, he's going to be different than previous captains I've had, and I think that's good. You don't really want um, that to be stagnant or, or to every captain have the same same way and same mentality. So. You know, I think it's good, but uh, I think every player in the locker room has a lot of faith in our captain, and so far he's doing a great job. Yeah, Jesse's someone that, not just now, but as a freshman, as a sophomore, I look up to him being, you know, a year older than me, and I feel like um, he's always been kind of a leadership role, not even now that he has a C, but just in the, my two previous years, I've always kind of looked up to him, so I don't think there's a, a big difference in, you know, the way I look at him. He's always been kind of a captain in my eyes, so... Um, I feel like um, he's a well-deserved um, C on his chest, and you know he. I have every you know faith in the world that he's going to do great. You know, college hockey these days, you have to have good freshmen. Every team in the country, freshmen are going to make an impact. Obviously, Tommy Fallon made a huge impact a couple of years ago. Stu Wilson made a huge impact this year or last year. Who are some of the guys you guys? Tell me a little bit about the freshmen this year. And a little bit more than just Hayden, because I feel like he gets a lot of buzz, and we know a lot about Hayden maybe because of his, you know, his status with the U.S. development team, and then being a high draft pick as a third round pick like he was. But tell me more about the class and something about the freshmen that you guys can can give up. Yeah, I mean, obviously John Hayden's the everyone's gonna look at him as the you know our top recruit um, and well deserved. I mean, he's a, he's an unbelievable talent and so big. You know, I didn't realize how big he was. Yeah, yeah, he's one of those yeah. freaks of nature that come around every once in a while, and um, you know he's he's, he's adjusted great so far. But there's a couple other freshmen, you know, Frank Tachara won the Clark Cup last year in the USHL, who uh, is fitting really well, and he's he's kind of just a scorer. You can tell he has a knack for scoring. And uh, there's a couple other forwards um, who uh, you know are looking to you know, improve every day. And I feel like they're, they're, they'll have a great impact as the season goes on. But you know, obviously Hayden and Tachara right away have uh, have surprised not surprised me, but you know, impressed me the most. Anything you want to add, Ken? Yeah, no, I agree with Anthony. I think those two uh, definitely have, have have stood out uh, with their play since we started practice. But uh, I really like our freshman class. I think you really got to give give them probably 10 games to really see what they can do. Um, I don't care where you play that before. And obviously the USHL is probably the smoothest transition, but you know, I'm sure Anthony can attest to it. Good thing to jump no matter where you come from when you're playing college hockey. And uh, I think once they settle in and, and adjust to the transition and just doing things a little bit quicker and uh, understanding how the college hockey game works, I think is when they're really going to be comfortable and start to play their game again. Not that they're not, but uh, be more comfortable playing their game in college hockey. And, uh, I like all of our freshmen. I think it makes practice better when when every lineup spot you're competing for and no one's ever complacent in their spot in the lineup. And uh, I think a lot of them are going to be big contributors for us this year. I want to ask you guys – well, I should ask you guys about the goalies first, and I'll get to the other thing. Because two of the goalies are freshmen, and then Connor Wilson's obviously returning. And in the exhibition game, each goalie took a period. And then last weekend, 
two freshman goalies each played a game. How do you guys kind of look at the goaltending position? And is there, I'm not even going to ask you guys to say if, if you think one is better than the other, because that doesn't matter. But just the goaltending position in general as forwards, do you guys look back there and think, yeah, Malcolm, he's not there anymore, but we're going to be okay. These guys are solid. Or What's the team's approach with having the two of the three goalies new and, and one goalie really inexperienced? I think it's something healthy. I mean, to have three goaltenders who are, you know, competing for that job and makes, you know, us better in practice. It, it makes it for a great competition, and, you know, they're all embracing it. And, you know, I'm sure Coach has a way to figure it out. And, you know, he played goaltender, seems a lot more about it than we do. But it's very healthy for our team to have, you know, three goalies, you know, battling every day to uh, turn that spot. And they've all, you know, done a great job. And it's, it'll be interesting to see how it goes forward. But it's really good for the team as well to have, you know, three guys in a fight like that. Um, so it's been good so far in practice. Yeah, just to add on that, uh, I agree. You know, competition in any position is great, especially in goaltending. But uh, something that Coach Langley says is that goaltending is, you know, the most important position in hockey, and I agree with that for a lot of reasons. And, and you know, just being here when there's been, you know, goalie carousels throughout a couple of my seasons here, I think, a lot of guys can say having Jeff really be the main goalie that we had last year really helps out. Just knowing who's going to be the guy night in and night out, and uh, and obviously I have faith in all three goalies, but I'd like to see at some point one of them separate themselves from the pack. So uh, we have some consistency in that. I want to ask you guys about Weberg because I was thinking about this, and I was watching a video of of the. Uh, is the North Dakota game, and I was watching the DVD, and it goes a little bit farther than the broadcast on ESPN. I just noticed uh, Weberg and Anthony kind of seeing each other for the first time after that game, and just kind of remember seeing Weberg in the in the stands at the at the Frozen Four after the first game. I think Anthony and him and I sat and watched the Quinnipiac game for a bit together. And then just kind of thinking about how he handled the situation of, you know, not being able to play in those games, but really being a big part of the team still, which it's not easy to do. And then coming back this year and being with you guys and having success so quickly this year, getting two goals in the second game of the year and the game-winning goal. What does he mean to the team, and how do you guys feel for him personally, seeing him fight through a really, I'm sure, difficult, difficult situation for him, doing it? so well, better than I would have done it, I guarantee that, and and making it through to the other side here this year. Yeah, no, I mean, you said it all, and, and I just have to agree. I mean, the, the the way he was able to to still be such an important part of our team after, you know, the head injuries he went through last year and, and being at the rink all the time with us and being surrounded by the guys was really inspiring to see. And then, you know, the kids got so much fight in them, and and competitiveness and, and where and the work that he put in. I, mean, I worked out with him all summer, just the work that he put in every day. You know, so hungry to get back in that line and back on that ice. And, and I think we were all very happy for him that he had opening, a great first opening weekend. And uh, he's a tremendous hockey player. And, and the competitive nature that he has is really nice to see. Yeah, I mean, I firsthand, I mean, he's one of my best friends. And, to, you know, I, I was with him a lot, you know, off the ice during our run there. And he never, you know, felt that he was, you know, going to be selfish or, you know, be, like, down about not playing. He was always there, and, you know, he was an, an awesome part of that run, just to, you know, the way he was with us. He 
never was down. He always was so positive about it, and um, it really was one of the highlights to see him after the game, both regional and there in Pittsburgh, just to, you know, give him a hug. And, um, and this summer as well, you know, me, Ken, and him live in the house, and, you know, he worked his he worked his bag off all summer, and he really, uh, you know, is uh, an instrumental part of our team. I was a junior, and to see him have a great opening weekend like that, it, it really, you know, makes me happy for him because I'm with him a lot, and uh, he's a, he's going to be a huge part of our team moving forward. You actually handed him the trophy, Anthony, in uh, handed to him in a suit, and I, me and him were talking on text or something. I was like. You know, you got to make sure that Anthony hands you the trophy in the uniform this year. You know. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, like I said, he, he's he's one of my best friends, and to hand the trophy was a cool thing. So hopefully, we can do that again. What's life like on campus for you guys? Is it any different this year than it was last year? Um. Yeah, pro- I think it, it's the whole night championship buzz that maybe we had last spring on campus has settled down. Uh, life on campus is pretty smooth. Schoolwork, food, practice, a couple of video games here and there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nothing um, too special. Uh, it's kind of you know died down since last April, but I feel like this weekend will be pretty cool to get back in Ingalls and uh, play in front of our crowd again. But yeah, I mean it's nothing you know heroic about you know walking around campus. We're just you know you know normal students now. It's not there's no um, really championship buzz around anymore, but. It'll be cool to get back in Ingalls this weekend and and uh, play in front of the home crowd. I was just thinking about this, and maybe this is more for Ken and Anthony. We could talk about this one next year for you, but I'll just—I don't know. I hope this doesn't sound silly because I don't think I need to give you advice at all. Kind of think you're doing just fine without it. But I remember this one day in my last year of college. I used to like to take as many classes as I can on the Tuesday, Thursday, so I wouldn't have to go much on Monday and Friday. And I remember the one day I was there all day I don't know maybe I was leaving at like 10 o'clock and I was real annoyed with it I was like I just need to get the hell out of here go back to my apartment and not come back for four days or whatever it's just one of those days you're just sick of school probably more and then I was walking to my car and I was thinking you know what I only got like four more months here and this is probably going to be the the best time of my life really I really need to slow down I think I turned around walked back to the campus diner or whatever and got a sub and hung out for another hour before I went back. So it started to dawn on you at all, Ken, that, you know, there's going to be certain things you're going to do for the last time at Yale. Like, you know, the la- it's going to be your last home opener this year. It's going to be, you know, the last time in January, it's going to be the last time you get a syllabus in a class or whatever. You're going to have to start thinking about that. And is it dawn on you at all yet? No, well, you're making it dawn on me a little more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, no, I, uh, obviously the senior, I think it's something you, you think about, but, uh, I think the best way to, to enjoy the last ball round is not really think about that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I have great, three senior classmates that uh, have made my time here really special. And uh, I'm just going to try to soak it all in this last year. What's the best thing about Yale that I don't know about? Like, what? sell me Yale a little bit and keep hockey out of it. Tell me a little bit about being a Yale-y. Uh Keep hockey out of it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know that that's good. Like, I believe that. You don't have to tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, but, uh, <laughs> I'll take this one from Kennedy, <laughs> No, I mean, uh, I don't know, I mean, <laughs> I'll take it. I think the best thing about Yale, besides the hockey, 
Um, I would just say the campus and just walk around town. You know, we're it's kind of cool to go to school in a city, you know, and not just from a college town like you did. You went to Fredonia, which is basically just the school. But I think it's cool to to live in a city as well. And, um, you know, New Haven has great food. Yeah, it's a beautiful city. So, uh, beautiful city, yeah, beautiful oh, yeah. campus. But I think just walking around is pretty cool. All right. Can you, did you think of anything? Yeah, no, just kind of to build off what Anthony said there, just to dovetail a little bit off of that. Uh, the campus is is obviously gorgeous, and uh, I think that's something probably a lot of people here take for granted. Um, but, uh, yeah, the buildings are incredible. <laughs> that's all I got. All right. Uh, let's see. Anthony and Kenny are forwards for the L Bulldogs, and they will be playing their first home game on Friday at Ingalls. And it's banner night. They're going to raise the national championship banner. Then they have another game on Saturday. I think I saw all the game. There's tickets for all the games, except for the Quinnipiac game is sold out. And I imagine that's because they buy a lot of tickets uh, as yeah. well. What about the rivalry with Quinnipiac? Uh, is it different at all this year? I, this has always been my impression of it. My impression has always been it, it probably means more to them than it does to you guys. I, I feel like maybe you guys have your Ivy League, like the Harvard rivalry and some other things that are maybe been around for a lot longer. And I, I got to think there's a little bit of an inferiority complex if you're a Quinnipiac student and not a Yale student. Um, and it's all, I've always gotten the impression it means more to them than it does to you guys, but maybe I'm wrong. Is it any different? Oh, yeah, so, is it any different? I think it's a lot. Uh, I think a lot of people think, you know, yeah, like kind of the rivalry means more to them than us. And I guess maybe you could say to some extent that's true. Uh, Obviously, our biggest rivalry is always going to be Harvard. But, uh, I mean, I still always consider the Yale Quinnipiac a huge rivalry, and it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely going to be a little different this year. Uh, that game in November at Quinnipiac is, is going to be probably as close to the playoff like how this year you're going to get in the regular season as you can get. Um, and, yeah, obviously the rivalry has grown with, with us playing in the 90 title game like that. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun this year playing them. Yeah, I agree with Ken. I think... Um from my freshman year to, to even sophomore year, I feel like it got bigger and bigger as, you know, every game we play against them. Um, but I feel like, you know, this year, obviously, a whole new element to it and um, probably just get more rowdy and, and more loud as uh, as we move on. All right. Do you guys have any questions for me? Um, excited for the weekend? <laughs> what? <laughs> you excited for the weekend? Yeah, I think it should be a pretty pretty good weekend. I'm, I'm very excited. I uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but well, I know Anthony knows. I don't know if you know Ken, but I was the biggest star of the Princeton uh, Yale broadcast. There was a lot of a lot of talk about me on the on the broadcast from the Princeton announcers. I'm sorry to overshadow really? you guys. Of buzz? Yeah, I got a lot of buzz. I was described That's as fine. tough. Start getting some respect around here. Yeah, I was described as tough. I never been described as that before. But yeah, so I'm sorry to overshadow you guys like that. No, it's fine. How was it fun to play at home like that? Uh, yeah, it was cool. Uh, it was, I mean, no disrespect to the Liberty Invitational Tournament staff, but <laughs> it, it really could have been put together, I think, a little better. And uh, the, the crowd was very disappointing, I got to say. I think my friends and family made up 60% of the crowd of, of 100 people, but. Uh, it was cool, obviously, to play in a rink that I won a few state championships in. And uh, it was nice to, to have the feeling of being close to home. I saw something on Twitter. I don't know if you guys have seen this. Dartmouth hadn't played a game in an NHL arena since 1980. And you guys played four, really? four in a row. 
that's really that's a really cool stat. <laughs> yeah, 1980. That's wow. a long. That's a long. That's my entire lifetime. <laughs> but all right, I'll let you guys go. I will see you on Friday. All right. Good luck, Steve. Up. All right. I want to thank our guest today, Ben Ryder from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, and the Yale Hockey Guys for being on the show. Don't forget you can find us on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters, and you can email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. One more thing for me this week. I talked last week about how I wasn't going to get overly mad about the Sabres, and I'm going to piggyback on that. I know that's kind of boring for any national listeners, but they traded away my second favorite player of all time, as we talked about earlier. And maybe the first, my first favorite was Michael Pekka, who also ended badly here, uh, with the same GM, by the way. And I'm not pissed that Vanek got traded because at this point it had to happen. He said as much that he wasn't going to resign here. Some rumors are trickling out now that the Sabres offered to make him the highest paid player in the league. And he's still backed away from that. I'm not sure how substantiated those rumors are, but they're coming from good, solid sources. Uh, That said, I am pissed that this trade had to happen because of the way the team's been mismanaged. I've always been a bit of a Darcy Regeer apologist, but they waited way too long for this rebuild. Had this rebuild happened the year after they lost Drury and Briere, people would have killed him for it but it would have been the right thing to do. Instead, they tried to tell people that uh, Drew Stafford and Dan Paye and Max Afinaganoff and Thomas Vanek were just going to be able to step into these roles and Brian Campbell, who they lost a year later, and the team was going to be good. Well, that never happened. The team has been lousy other than that one Eastern Conference Finals appearance, uh, and they've made two playoffs, two first-round exits, in that entire time Darcy Regeer's been here, because we middled the entire time instead of being bad, which unfortunately is what you have to do in the NHL. And for that reason, I'm pissed my favorite player is gone, because he was made to kind of just wallow here, sort of. I mean, he had a great career in Buffalo, uh, all-time great Sabre, but now he's going to move on, and I hope he wins somewhere else, just not in New York because of the draft pick. And he was so good last year. Yep. I mean, he had he the first probably 15 games of that season, he was the only reason they won a game. He's a guy that literally has put them on their backs. I don't remember what year it was, but I remember watching a uh, Toronto Maple Leafs game where I was excited because it's the Leafs and uh, the Sabres always played the Leafs uh, tough because it's a vision game and right down the road and blah, blah, blah. And I remember being at a friend's house. I think it was like one of Michelle's friends. I wasn't overly excited to be there, but the Sabres game was on, so cool. The Leafs got up like 3 nothing right away. And Vanek just put the team on his back and said, hell no, we're not losing this game. And I don't remember how many points he put up that night, but he was just awesome. And he could do that uh, time and again. He's got highlight real goal after highlight real goal. Best hands on the team as far as deflecting pucks. Maybe the best I've ever seen at just deflecting pucks in front of the net. But I'm pissed that they waited until their hand was forced and they absolutely had no choice but to rebuild, uh, and now my favorite player is gone. I was going to do something about how I'm souring 
on fantasy football, but I can save that for next time. Instead, I have a question for you, Don. Yes. Let's say you're a beat writer for the Vancouver Canucks. Gotcha. And someone on Twitter that you don't know, admittedly, Mm -hmm. reaches out to you and says, hey, love to talk to you about the Canucks, Pavel Bure's retirement, number being retired, which is happening on Friday in Vancouver as Canucks play the Leafs. And you haven't had anyone at you on Twitter in a day and a half. Okay. So it's not like you can use the excuse of it got lost in the million messages <laughs> you got. Okay. Do you think it's your responsibility as a human being to respond, whether it be yay or nay? This is an ESPN guy. Person? Is it we're going to burn some bridges? No, again? it's uh, okay. literally a writer for a paper in yeah, I don't, Vancouver. I, I don't know how big the... Uh... I don't know. Canada's a different animal. I, I would I would think that since nobody else, it'd be nice to get a response. It's super weak. But anyway, that's not my one last thing. My one okay. last thing is I wouldn't be the hockey fan I am today if it wasn't for Pavel Bure being the best goal scorer in the league when he was at a time where I was a very impress, impressionable uh, hockey fan. And some of my greatest memories as a, a kid were being able to go the one time that the Canucks were in Buffalo that year down to the yard and to eventually to the arena to see Bray play, which he never had a bad game here. I no. mean, he was a saber killer. Even as a Panther. No matter who he played for, yeah. when he came here, he put on a show. Actually, there's a night as a Panther. Miss, Four goals, Miss right? Caster and I were talking about recently where we had sat real close and he had a hat trick. Okay. Uh, poor Mike Wilson, still looking for his jock. <laughs> after. Uh, but Bray, as I mentioned, is going to have his number retired by the Canucks. One of those where it didn't end well there. No. And uh, good for them to be able to put that aside and give the fans a chance to honor Bure, uh, a guy who, if not the greatest Canuck of all time, would certainly be the second, probably no worse than the third. And really, retiring numbers is for the fans. It's about the fans, and it's about it's about your arena being or your your organization being above pettiness, like how something ended and being able to step away and look at the overall history of your organization and to properly represent that in your arena. Nothing is worse than going to an out of town arena and seeing a banner for the highest attendance in the WNBA like they have in Washington, (laughs) but nothing is better than going to console and looking up at the Mario Lemieux banner and just being able to close your eyes and think about the things that that player did in that city. So congratulations to the Canucks on getting it right and getting Bure's number into the rafters. And before we go, we did this last week without a mention, and that was a mistake on our part. A good friend of Don and I's is a fellow from Pittsburgh named Matt Billiter, who we're both very proud of for uh, putting together a CD of original uh, tunes with his bandmates. called They call it Society Blue, and the album is called Counterclockwise, and it's available on iTunes and Amazon. And they have a website, www.societyblue.com. And you can also find them on Facebook and Twitter. And I suggest it. And we went out to a song last week called Happy Land. And we're going to do that again today. So congratulations uh, to Matt and to Jack and to Brett and to Dennis and to Bob for a really great CD. Please.
When you wanna get away for a while Sunny rain, windy or snow When I go that always makes me smile I know such a place I go there when I'm feeling down As I look on my face When I hear that sweet sound of Happy land, it's alright 